Chapter 1. The Message in Outline The Background Our Human Predicament The writers of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, were in no doubt that God had spoken. Not only had he brought into being the heavens and the earth by his divine fiat, his incredibly powerful word, but he continued to speak through certain chosen agents, the prophets. In this way, God's people were not left in the dark about the plan and purpose which the Almighty, who had made everything alone, Isaiah 44 verse 24, Job 9 verse 8, was executing for the benefit of his creation. The character of the God of creation was summed up in his divine name, which revealed him as, quote, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abundantly kind and faithful. That's a quotation from Exodus 34, verse 6, Numbers 14, verse 18, Deuteronomy 4, verse 31, Nehemiah 9, verse 17, Psalm 86, verse 15, Psalm 103, verse 8, and Psalm 108, verse 4, Psalm 145, verse 8, Joel 2.13, and Romans chapter 2, verse 4. The latter of these texts appeals to the gracious character of God as a reason for our repentance in order to seek mercy. The role of the prophet as God's representative was to make clear the direction in which men were to go in order to align themselves with the divine program. Their compliance with God's instructions would be in their best interest, for to resist God was, in the long run, to court disaster. Men might appear to, quote, get away with it for a time, but ultimate retribution would be swift, sure, and terrible. I quote, it is a fearful thing, says the New Testament writer to the Hebrews, to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10 verse 31. The compassion of the one God of Israel was in no way inconsistent with the reality of his displeasure at wrongdoing. The judgment which the evildoer brings upon himself is a constant feature of the biblical message. The diagnosis of the human corruption, which in all ages was evident on every hand, had been declared in the earliest documents of the Hebrew religion, and it was a mysterious being known as, quote, the serpent. The definite article suggests that he was a well-known figure in Genesis 3 verse 1, that serpent had questioned the truth of the Creator's word and lured the first woman into disobedience, using a subtle, sophisticated appeal to her desire for wisdom. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6. The serpent's propaganda was worthy of the most modern techniques of manipulation of fact. God's word was first questioned and then contradicted. 
Thus tricked into disobedience, though they had been fully instructed in the Creator's will, the first pair were made to understand the gravity of their error by suffering the curse of banishment from the Paradise Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, verse 23 and 24. The supreme tragedy was that their potential for immortality, the reason for which God had created them in the first place, was lost. Genesis 3, verse 19. For God will not grant endless life to any who have not proved by their conscientious obedience that they will serve him alone. Adam and Eve had clearly failed the test. Placed on the earth to exercise dominion over it, Genesis 2, verse 28, the parents of the human race surrendered to the alien authority of the devil. Man forfeited his right to be king as God's vice-regent on earth. He voted for the lies of the devil, thus making that devil the God of this age. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. The situation seemed hopeless, but for one redeeming fact. A promise was announced by the Creator that in later generations, just how much later was not revealed at this stage of the plan, a descendant of the woman Eve would arise to undo the catastrophic work of the serpent and make possible the recovery of man's potential for endless life. You'll find that in Genesis 3 verse 15. Apart from the appearance of that promised deliverer, however, man must consider himself subject to inevitable death, the cessation of conscious existence, the just punishment for his disobedience to his Maker. The condition of man in death is found in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5, Psalm 6, verse 5, Psalm 104, verse 29, Psalm 146, verse 4, and John 11, verses 11 and 14. I note that Alan Richardson's observation that, quote, the whole biblical theology is a theology of the word, God speaks his word, man must hear and obey. That's from Richardson's introduction to the theology of the New Testament. Against this background, there arises in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we rather unfortunately call the Old Testament, original testament would be a better term, the fundamentally important notion of the word or message, a body of inspired information about the divine program for rescuing mankind from the consequences of his rebellion and subsequent slavery to evil powers. In Adam and Eve, the human race had become guilty of the ultimate crime. They had yielded to the instructions of the serpent, whose clever lie had been more attractive than the Creator's truth. Compare with that Jesus' statement that the devil was, quote, a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, 
he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of the lie. John 8, verse 44. Adam and Eve had yielded to the instructions of the serpent, whose clever lie had been more attractive than the Creator's truth. Their conduct showed a careless disregard for the divine will. Failure to discern between truth and lie was a poor recommendation indeed for candidates for immortality. A universe peopled by immortals unable to distinguish right from wrong and truth from error would be unthinkable. The way out of the impasse in which fallen man now found himself and the way back to the tree of life is the subject of the divine message revealed progressively throughout the sacred writings. It is the single concern of the whole Bible. The message reveals the solution to the terrible predicament now facing the human race. Like a beacon in a dark world, it held forth the hope of rescue from death, the attainment of immortality, the restoration of paradise on earth, justice for all, and harmony throughout the universe. This master plan provides a source of unshakable optimism for every human person conscious of his or her mortality and the desperate condition of our world. The plan is God's own story, a drama full of suspense, an epic involving, quote, kingship lost and kingship regained forever. Man's continued rebellion. The immediate descendants of Adam and Eve proved themselves incapable of avoiding the traps which had been the downfall of their first parents. Having broken loose from the protective relationship offered them by their creator, they became victims of the evil powers who sought to destroy them. According to Genesis 6, a ghastly disruption of human affairs occurred when evil angelic beings interfered with the human biological chain by uniting sexually with chosen women. Genesis 6 verse 4. The result was the production of a race of terrifying giants, Genesis 6 verse 5, who dominated the earth and became the legendary heroes remembered in Greek mythology. Displeased with the wanton disobedience of his creatures, God determined to punish the world with a flood as the divine response to the rampant evil which prevailed on earth. Genesis 6 verse 7. God was actually sorry that he had created man at all. Genesis 6 verse 6. His children continued to listen to the beguiling voice of Satan transferring their loyalty from the Creator to a created being. Violence filled the earth. Genesis 6, verses 11 to 13, the Almighty resolved to wipe out every living thing, mankind and animals alike, 
sparing a single family, Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives. A large boat was constructed to house the favoured few during the days of the deluge, which destroyed on a massive scale. According to the records, eight human beings only survived that ravaging judgment. Genesis 7, verses 13, 22, and 23, and 1 Peter 3, verse 20. The human race continued to fall short of the destiny for which God had granted it existence. I note that Nimrod, according to the Septuagint version of Genesis 10, verses 8 and 9, was a, quote, giant, and a giant hunter before the Lord. His kingdom was the prototype of man's government in rebellion against God. The erection of the Tower of Babel, designed to reach up to heaven itself, represented mankind's first attempt at one-world government. Its failure to impress the deity is obvious when the Genesis narrator reminds us that God had to come down from heaven to inspect the feeble project underway at Babylon. Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. A new start. Abraham, the father of the faithful. Millennia had passed since the fatal disobedience of Adam and Eve. Their rejection of the Creator in favor of his enemy, the devil, had meant nothing less than the transfer of government into the hands of the serpent. The story of the recovery of divine supremacy over mankind is the story of the whole Bible. It's a drama still in process, as the human family, still largely in the grip of Satan, as we see in John 16 verse 11, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, 1 John 5, verse 19, and Revelation 12, verse 9. The drama is still in process. The world is still largely in the grip of Satan, and it fails to recognize what God is doing in history. I refer there to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. If the rulers had understood they would not have killed the Lord of glory, that is, the Lord of the kingdom of God. Insight into the divine purpose now in progress can be gained by a careful examination of God's dealings with Abraham, who was privileged to receive the Christian gospel in advance, as we read in Galatians 3, verse 8. Ten generations after the flood, the Lord God laid the basis for a new creation by selecting a single family, residents of Ur of the Chaldees in Babylon, and Genesis 12, verses 1 to 4, records the summons to Abraham to leave what lay closest to his heart, his native land and his kinsfolk, and to set out for a new land which God would show him. The divine declaration to Abraham contains the ingredients of the Christian gospel, 
and thus of the entire biblical drama. I quote, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. All that is in Genesis chapter 12. Believing obedience to the divine word response to the very same test which Abraham and Eve had failed would result in incredible blessing for Abraham, his descendants, and all who modeled their relationship with God on his. In the words of Genesis, I quote, in association with Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, verse 3. The promise made to Abraham, later called Abraham, provides the bedrock foundation for God's subsequent dealings with mankind. The Christian faith is incomprehensible when divorced from the divine oath of promise which formed the basis of God's covenant or contract with Abraham. Genesis 15 verse 18, who was justly called, quote, the father of the faithful. Romans chapter 4 verse 1, 11, 12, and 16. As Paul the Apostle remarked, the Christian good news or gospel of salvation had been preached in advance to Abraham. Galatians 3 verse 8. God's dealings with Abraham forge a link between the patriarchs and the Christian faith as taught by Jesus, uniting the story of the Bible in a coherent whole. Psalm 105 verses 8 to 15 celebrates the covenant made with the patriarchs and calls them messiahs and prophets, as in Psalm 105, verse 15. Divine communication to Abraham. The great process of recovery and restoration began with the communication of the divine message to Abraham. His very name nominates him a founding father. Even the opening letters of his name suggest primacy and foundation like the beginning of the alphabet. A-B is the Hebrew for father, and Abraham means, quote, father of a multitude. Genesis 17, verses 4 and 5. Abraham demonstrated an exemplary faith in God, an unquestioning obedience, by responding to the divine call to leave his native country and to journey to a land unknown which God would show him. 
24 years later, by a solemn confirmation of the divine covenant, the land of Canaan was promised both to him and to his descendants, and in a special sense, to his descendant, with a capital D, in the singular. I quote, And I will give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. That's in Genesis 17, verse 8. Paul's comment illuminates the promise. I quote, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is, Messiah. Galatians 3, verse 16. The terms of this covenant with Abraham require close scrutiny, since they form the foundation of the entire biblical story of redemption and have momentous implications for the future of the world. The Abrahamic covenant, which Jesus came to reconfirm, according to Romans 15, verse 8, provides an indispensable guide to the meaning of New Testament Christianity, a blueprint for the ongoing plan of God. It would be no exaggeration to say that failure to grasp the terms of God's arrangements with Abraham is the root of the massive confusion now existing in the minds of churchgoers in regard to the whole purpose of the Christian faith. The solemn words of God to Abraham were repeated on several occasions. The promise runs like a golden thread through the Genesis narrative. I quote, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. You'll find that in Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 to 17. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. Genesis 15, verse 18. Another quotation. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's from Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8. A primary lesson in Bible study, perhaps the key to a grasp of Scripture, is to recognize that these divine promises still, to this day, remain unfulfilled. 
In the past, it is true, they have been partially realized in the history of Israel. As promises of things yet to come, they are the basis of Christian hope and account for the eager expectation of early Christians who faced martyrdom rather than abandon their vision of an endless, blissful inheritance based on the promise to Abraham confirmed in Christ. The early Christians were keen to point out that Abraham had never yet received the promised land. I quote, God gave him, that is Abraham, no inheritance in the land, not even a foot of ground, and yet even when he had no child, God promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. You'll find that in Acts chapter 7, verse 5. Another quotation. All these hearers of faith, including Abraham, died without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles in the land. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That's in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 and 39. Jesus was a committed adherent to belief in the destiny of the faithful, to gain possession of the land as originally promised to Abraham. Blessed are the meek, for they will receive the land, or earth, as their inheritance. That's from Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. The essence of the divine drama being worked out on earth is stated by the writer to the Hebrews, commending Abraham for his faith in the plan. I quote, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived in the land of the promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, who were fellow heirs of the same promise. That's Hebrews 11, verses 8 and 9. It is from the extraordinary tension created by the non-fulfillment of this divine promise that the New Testament derives its infectious excitement as it strains towards the grand denouement of the divine plan. Abraham lived in the promised land, but never gained possession of it. Therein lies the fascination of the Bible and the challenge of faith. Excitement is maintained as each day brings us a step closer to the reappearance of those heroes of faith and all subsequent believers to attain, by resurrection from the dead, their prize. Hebrews 11, verse 35. As the writer to the Hebrews observed, the patriarchs had, quote, all died without receiving the promises. 
Hebrews 11, verses 13 and 39. The New Testament teaches that our hope is their hope, and their land ours also. The land belongs to Jesus, and he will share it with his followers, who are co-heirs of the land promise. Galatians 3, verse 19, Romans 8, verse 17, and 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. The important references in Genesis to Abraham's offspring, that's to say his, quote, seed, Genesis 13, 15, chapter 15, verse 18, and chapter 17, verse 8, these references recall the seed promised to Eve. Genesis 3, verse 15. In him, the seed, the disaster caused by the serpent would be reversed. As we've seen, Paul recognized that the great descendant was none other than the Messiah himself. I quote, to your seed, that is Christ. Galatians 3, verse 16. The long-awaited deliverer of Israel and of the whole world, as we read in John 1, 49 and John 4, verse 42. To Jesus was assigned the task of undoing the chaos wrought by Satan. Through Jesus, man's divine status as God's representative on earth would be restored. By him, the evil powers would be defeated forever. Colossians 2 verse 15. John the Apostle described the Messiah's role succinctly. The Son of God appeared for this reason to undo the works of the devil. 1 John 3 verse 8. Jesus defined how that work would be accomplished when he stated the purpose for his mission. Quote, I must proclaim the gospel about the kingdom of God to the other cities also. That is the reason for which I was commissioned. Luke 4, verse 43. This remains the purpose of the church until the return of Christ to take over the reins of world government. Matthew 24, verse 14. The message which came to Abraham contains all the essential elements of the divine plan and therefore of the whole Bible. The promises made to the, quote, fathers of the faithful provide the indispensable basis for a right understanding of apostolic Christianity. They are at the root of all that Jesus taught, instilled in the thinking of Jesus from his profound meditation on the Hebrew Bible was the following conception of God's purpose for the world, God's plan for man. A descendant promised to Eve later designated the Messiah or anointed king or Christ, will arise from the family of Abraham, and he will gain possession of the land of Palestine and the world forever. Abraham, as the prototypical believer, will also enjoy this promised inheritance. Though during his lifetime, 
he had inherited nothing. The permanence of the divine blessing destined for Abraham at once raises the question of immortality. For what is the point of an endless inheritance for Abraham unless his life can be prolonged indefinitely to enjoy it? Abraham died and slept with his fathers. An everlasting inheritance can make sense, therefore, only if Abraham can be brought to life again. We confront here the absolute necessity for the resurrection of the dead in the divine scheme. Generations pass, and the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob grow into the nation of Israel. Exodus 1, verses 1 to 7. Emerging from their terrible slavery in Egypt, Exodus 14 and Exodus 15, the people wander in the wilderness, guided by Moses, Exodus 16 to 40, and enter the promised land under Joshua, Joshua chapters 1 to 24. Can this be the fulfillment at last of the promise to Abraham? Clearly not in its ultimate form, for Abraham, to whom the gift of the land was granted, has long since been buried, and the promised descendant, the great deliverer, has not yet appeared. The message persists throughout the centuries as the guiding light of the nation of Israel. Far from becoming obscure, as time goes on, it gains remarkable clarity in the life of the beloved king of Israel, David, son of Jesse. As God worked in the career of this celebrated psalmist, prophet, and monarch, the message received a new impetus, projecting the hopes of the faithful towards the birth of Messiah Jesus and far beyond to the promised kingdom of peace. David, a sketch, so to speak, of the future Messiah. The unimportant eighth son of a sheep farmer, a mere shepherd boy with beautiful eyes, 1 Samuel 16, verse 12, David becomes, next to Abraham and Moses, the most significant figure in the history of Israel and the development of the divine plan. Despite obvious lapses, he is distinguished by his wholehearted devotion to God and he is equipped for his high office by the gift of the divine spirit which marks him out as God's anointed king, that is, a Messiah. 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 3, and verses 12 and 13. He is truly a man after God's own heart and spirit, sensitive to the unfolding divine plan. 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, and Acts 13, verse 22. Through Nathan the prophet, the ancient message is confirmed to David. Once again, there is the promise of the notable descendant who will one day establish forever the kingdom granted to David as his promised inheritance. 2 Samuel 7, 
verses 12 to 17. The link with the earlier oath-bound promise to Abraham is obvious. The grant of land automatically requires a government to go with it. A perpetual dynasty and kingdom is covenanted to David in this message about the kingdom, the seed of the gospel of the kingdom, as Jesus later preached it, is found. David sees a set of instructions, an oracle by which the destiny of mankind will be directed. The message has become universal in its scope. The future of all humanity is bound up with the promise of the greater son of David, the Messiah, whose kingdom, the land of promise, will provide the ultimate solution to all the world's ills as well as the final answer to the so-called Jewish problem. Built upon the earlier land contract with Abraham, the Davidic promises contained the following assurances. I quote, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. That's from 2 Samuel 7 verse 10. On these mighty themes of permanent security, monarchy and territory, the whole structure of the biblical story rests. The message it should be carefully noted, is never merely, quote, religious. It is both national and universal and related to the future of the earth. Exile and return to the land. The division of the kingdom of David into the northern Israel and the southern Judah occurred soon after the death of Solomon David's illustrious but very fallible successor. With some notable exceptions in the house of Judah, the descendants of David who ruled in Israel and Judah failed to exemplify the high ideals of David. Progressive evil made divine judgment inevitable. Israel in the north succumbed to the invasions of the Assyrian Empire and was deported in the late 8th century BC, 2 Kings 17. The ten tribes were lost to history. The southern kingdom of Judah survived until the end of the 6th century. The wickedness of the Jewish kings attracted a divine visitation in the person of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who removed Zedekiah, king of Judah, and many of the Jews to Babylon, 2 Kings 24 and also chapter 25. The throne of Israel ceased to exist. The Persian king Cyrus granted the Jews a return to the land under Ezra and Nehemiah. You'll find that in 2 Chronicles 36 verses 20 to 23 and also in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
but the promised kingdom of God on earth did not appear. The Messiah, the Deliverer, had not yet been born. During much of the 400, quote, silent years, between the end of the Old Testament canon and the birth of Jesus, the people struggled under the domination of the Greek Seleucid kingdom. Despite all their disappointments, the faithful never abandoned hope in God's covenants with Abraham and David, guaranteeing a final restoration and liberation under the reign of the promised Prince Messiah. The Birth of the Deliverer Words are inadequate to describe the feelings of the two women selected to bear the children in whom the age-old promises would come to fruition. Luke's account of the birth of John the Baptist, forerunner to the Messiah, and of his far greater and unique successor, Jesus, is alive with the thrill of messianic expectation. Since the dawn of history, the faithful had awaited the coming of the one who was to be empowered to reverse the tragedy which had befallen Adam and Eve and the human race as a whole. This was the King Messiah, God's legal agent, imbued with the divine spirit who would triumph over the spiritual powers of darkness which had enslaved mankind's first parents and their descendants ever since. The serpent's devastating work was apparent everywhere in suffering humanity. I note that a leading nutritionist states that America is, quote, epidemically sick. That's from Ruth Swope in her book Green Leaves of Bali. The strong parallel between physical and spiritual health, as well as between the practice of medicine and theology, suggests that we may also be spiritually diseased. The Spirit of God, however, in Jesus was stronger by far. The New Testament accounts of his ministry describe a dramatic conquest of evil by means of the extraordinary divine spirit with which he was gifted. Using Jesus as his human agent, the second Adam, God was beginning to reassert his authority and recover rebel province earth from the clutches of the devil. In the words of the beloved apostle, Jesus was commissioned to, quote, unravel the work of the devil. 1 John 3, verse 8. Peter captured the essence of the work of Jesus the Messiah with these words. I quote, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That's a quotation from Acts chapter 10, verse 38. The ministry of Jesus, as we shall see, consisted of the proclamation of the good news or gospel of the approach of the kingdom of God. That turning point in the history of the world 
longed for by every pious Israelite. The gospel message of Jesus renewed hope for the fulfillment of all that the prophets, as exponents of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, had foreseen. The substance of Jesus' preaching was both promise and warning. The kingdom of God is coming. Turn in repentance to God. Believe the gospel message. Prepare for the great day of destiny. Prepare for the great sifting of mankind into the two categories of good and evil, believers and unbelievers, wheat and chaff. That's in Matthew 3, verse 12. The message announced by Jesus is to be the church's message until the arrival of the kingdom for which we pray in Matthew 24, verse 14, and Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Despite the majesty of his career in Palestine, a handful of people only responded to Jesus' message. His rejection is described by John in these memorable words. I quote, He came to his own land, but his people did not receive him. That's in John chapter 1, verse 11. Compare with that the comment of E.C. Hoskins in his commentary on the fourth gospel, he came to his own property or home. The land of Palestine belonged to the Messiah as his inheritance. His rejection at his first coming does not cancel God's plan to give him the land at his second coming. It was the exponents of traditional religion blinded by their man-made theology yet claiming allegiance to the same sacred writings as he, Matthew 23, verses 13 and following, Matthew 15, verses 7 to 9, and Matthew 22, verse 29. It was those people who joined the Roman authorities in consigning him to the ignominious death of a criminal on the cross. And there, but for the supreme miracle of the resurrection, the story would have ended. Yet, in reality, it had just begun. The return of Jesus to life by resurrection, Acts 1, verse 3, Acts 10, 41, marked a crucial stage in the grand scheme for the rescue of mankind. It was the initiation of a new creation of immortal human beings, the restoration of the ideal which God has envisaged from the beginning. Mankind makes another new start in Jesus, with the resurrection of the one man, Jesus, to endless life, the prospect of the same destiny is open to all who follow in Jesus' steps. The failure of the divided church is that it has ceased to bear the message of deliverance onwards to its great climax. Uncertain 
about where it is going, it cannot speak to the world with conviction. Something has happened to cast a smokescreen across the path which leads to the goal. A fragmented church is symptomatic of that devastating loss of vision. Fortunately, we do not need to remain in doubt or darkness. The early Christians have bequeathed to us a fair warning about where the danger of blindness lies. The difficulty is that 20th century man, in his wisdom, has scorned those warnings and does his utmost to explain them away as superstition. The amazing advances of so-called science, which is really only the discovery of how God's universe works, have lured many into the delusion that we should believe only in what can be measured in a test tube or seen with the physical eye. This philosophy immediately casts a shadow over the truth of the divine plan in the Bible. Once again, the serpent reappears to question the word of God. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4. The devil's propaganda insists that the Bible's miracles do not fit with the modern scientific worldview. The resurrection of Jesus was not observed by science. Thus the hand of God in history is rejected and his purpose to grant immortality to those who recognize him as the active architect of a plan to rescue us from our growing plight including our universal slavery to death, is treated with disdain. This is the great human tragedy. Despite our show of religion, many largely close their eyes to God's purpose for the earth. Many churchgoers would be hard-pressed to give an account of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, and their vital importance for the Christian gospel. Most are perplexed when asked to define the kingdom of God in the teaching of Jesus. The observation of the well-known translator J.B. Phillips points to a disturbing ignorance of the Christian faith in the sophisticated Western world. J.B. Phillips has been shocked by the hundreds of conversations he has had with men of the highest intellectual caliber. These men, says J.B. Phillips, who quite obviously had no idea of what Christianity was about. I was in no way trying to catch them out, says J.B. Phillips. I was simply and gently trying to find out what they knew about the New Testament. My conclusion was that they knew virtually nothing this I find pathetic and somewhat horrifying. It means that the most important event in history is politely and quietly bypassed. For it is not as though the evidence has been examined and found unconvincing. It has simply never been examined. That's from J.B. Phillips' book, The Ring of Truth, in 1967. J.B. Phillips says this too. 
It is one of the curious phenomena of modern times that it is considered perfectly respectable to be abysmally ignorant of the Christian faith. Men and women who would be deeply ashamed of having their ignorance exposed in matters of poetry, music, ballet, or painting, for example, are not in the least perturbed to be found ignorant of the New Testament. Very rarely does a man or woman give honest, intelligent, adult attention to the writings of the New Testament and then decide that Jesus was merely a misguided man. The plain fact is not that men have given the New Testament their serious attention and found it spurious, but that they have never given it their serious attention at all. That's from Phillips's book, The Young Church in Action, in 1955. It is the function of the United Church to be custodian of the divine information which alone gives meaning to the universe in which man finds himself. To her, the Church has been committed the message, the master plan by which the destinies of the human race are to be directed. The voice of God is heard in her proclamation, or should be. These are no empty theological platitudes. They represent the heart of the biblical heritage on which the Church must be founded, if indeed she is to be the Church. The presence of many conflicting churches points only to the urgency of the need to restate the message clearly, to regroup the fragmented church around it, and offer it for the comfort and hope of the whole world.